Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that, what the heck, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and the Pillar's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, how you how's doing, it looking JD? up there? It's been a bit of a week. It's been a bit of a week. It has indeed been a bit of a week, and we are here to talk about it. It's only Thursday. This is Thursday of the third week of Pillar Time, as I like to call it, which is to say this is... AP. <laughs> indeed. This is Thursday uh, This is Thursday of the third week of AP, uh, um, and... Uh, you and I had, an, it's funny because that you said that because you, I, I don't know if you were referencing this or not, but you and, our, you and I had this conversation yesterday that, I don't know if you know this, but we have this every five weeks. Every five weeks, you ask me if noon is a.m. or p.m. And uh, oh, Really? I didn't yeah. realize <laughs> Yeah, it's a thing. And, uh, and so indeed, we had that conversation just, just yesterday. And I presume it's because they don't have noon in England. Well, no, they do. I mean, they call it midday. They don't call it noon. But I, <laughs> I, I traditionally have just written time in on a 24-hour clock oh right because you guys have military time only in england uh I, I, that, that may be painting with a broad brush but um it, it is it is at least it was in my professional life more common to for the avoidance of doubt or confusion um to to write the time in uh in 24-hour form so i it's true i often when when trying to say midday 15 for example I'm often unclear whether or not one should put AM or PM after that because it seems counterintuitive to put, I, I don't want to go into it. It's a silly thing that I can't get, seem to get right. I didn't realize well, I was like every five weeks and I apologize. I, I, hope, I hope you don't feel embarrassed. You, you needn't apologize. It's one of the many recurring conversations that you and I have that I enjoy. We have any number of recurring conversations about issues of style, grammar, syntax, um, or I, I don't know what else. Um, well, that's, I am aware of that, although most of those are just because you're wrong and I want to keep revisiting them. <laughs> this is one I was genuinely unaware we'd had before. No, okay. Well, we, we have. Um, we have. God, why are we talking? Okay, well, this is what we're talking about now. Um, the point is, noon is uh, noon. If you were to say 12.01 in the afternoon, 12.01 p.m., and the reason is because that is post-meridian. But see, now I'm all confused because what is a.m.? Anti, anti, like antipasta meridian. Is it after yeah. midnight? Yeah, but then now I'm confused about AP, and the reason is because it's not Anno Pillar. Are you saying like Anno Pillar? Yeah, I meant it as a joke of Anno Pillar with a with a cheeky reference to your fascination with the godless and arbitrary rules of AP style. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. I, don't, I see. Okay, fair enough. Well, whatever. It, it's uh, it's. We're going to move on because um, <laughs> I feel like I've gotten caught into a tangle of that conversation where I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even quite following it myself. And if I'm not following it, then I have no doubt that our listeners have already turned to the next. Uh, they're probably listening to Bible in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz or something now, and, and we, we need them back. So come back, everyone. All right. Ed, this was one heck of a week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it was. I, the, uh, we had the peaceful transition of power from one presidential administration to another. And uh, that went about as well as could be hoped, all things considered. We now have our second Catholic president in U.S. history. And that is going about as well as expected. We now have our second Catholic president in U.S. history. And this is, uh, we're recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. 
And uh, our second Catholic president has, um, I hadn't checked the news ed in the 45 minutes or so before we recorded this. Has our second Catholic president rescinded the Mexico City policy yet? Uh, I hadn't seen him having done so, although let's let's stay up to date, shall we, and just see. Um, the last thing I saw was uh, Dr. Fauci's promise that it will be repealed. Right, that's right, that's right. So as of Thursday afternoon, it, there has been a promise that the Mexico City policy, which prohibits, which prohibits that federal funds be given to um, aid organizations around the world, which make referrals for abortion or otherwise encourage or facilitate abortion. And the Mexico City policy is an interesting kind of a, a political ping pong ball, because every time... A Republican is elected to the office of the presidency. He assigns the Mexico City policy into effect. And every time a Democrat is elected to the office of the presidency, he rescinds the Mexico City policy. So it's just back and forth and back and forth. And I have to imagine that NGOs that get uh, federal funding from the United States have sort of two policy books on the shelf, you know, for when the Mexico City policy is in effect and, and when it isn't. Yeah, that's probably right. I... I... If it hasn't been rescinded by the time this podcast goes out, I expect it will have been rescinded by the time we record the next one. Uh, I think we will probably see a concerted attempt to junk the Hyde Amendment around about that time, too. I think that's right. The Hyde Amendment is interesting. So the Mexico City policy is the political ping pong ball of American presidential politics. But the Hyde Amendment is different. The Hyde Amendment is a, um, a sort of rider on the federal budget that prohibits the federal funding of abortion through Medicaid fundamentally, that prohibits Medicaid funds going towards abortion. And the, the Hyde Amendment is decades old. I mean, for decades, federal funding of abortion has prohibit, been prohibited through the Hyde Amendment. And so seeing it jettisoned, it will be a new thing, correct? Uh, yeah, this is this has survived all kinds of changes of administration over the years, uh, sometimes on a knife edge, and it has in the past survived uh, through the votes of such noted uh, cautious pro-lifers as Senator Joseph Biden. Of Delaware. Biden had historically supported the Hyde Amendment, which prohibited federal funding for abortion until he until he was running for president last year. Um, Biden was on abortion kind of um, really, I think you could say of the of the field, those who are trying to get the Democratic nomination last year, probably the most conservative among them with regard to abortion. That is to say, the one who was least sort of in favor of expansive uh, abortion policies, except maybe for Tulsi Gabbard. But among sort of the candidates with a chance, Biden began as sort of a moderate on abortion um, and was pushed, pushed, pushed to the left during the course of the primary campaign, making more and more concessions to uh, the abortion lobby of the Democratic Party to, to the point where now he has agreed to sort of s- scrap the, the Hyde Amendment and work to sort of codify the uh, Roe versus Wade into federal law, which would prohibit states from passing various kinds of laws that would regulate abortion, et cetera. Yeah, he's taken the pledge. He's he's an abortion absolutist now. He's he's made the promise, and uh, you know the signs are already that he's going to make good that he offered he offered the incense at the altar of the Democratic primary, and he got what he paid for. He's in the he's in the White House. And, you know, already, for example, you could do, did you see this thing of the flags? No, I didn't see the thing. of the Okay. Flags. So DC has been festooned with these oh, uh, right. I did see flags in place of people. Um, and one so of them like was the mall for the inauguration. They exactly. Put, was it like 200,000 flags on the mall to represent Something people who couldn't be there? Which I actually, I know we are going to disagree about this because you're cynical about all things. And I tend to have a sort of patriotic streak running through me, which I thought was kind of cool and, and a neat symbol and things like that, but you were, I'm sure, not a fan of. 
Well, let me tell you for why, JD. Uh, it turns out the Biden inauguration committee uh, set up a thing where you could sponsor a mini American flag to, you know, go in the sort of uh, dolling up of uh, the Capitol during all of this. And if you didn't change the default settings, uh, part of your sponsorship went straight to Planned Parenthood. Jeez. So, yeah, just, you know, when you see the pretty pictures of all the pretty flags, think of the babies. That's, now, that's Joe Biden's America. Yeah. Now, Brave I new would- world. I would like to say for people who are new to the podcast that Ed and I are equal opportunity political critics, which is to say we have been unhappy with the political choices presented to Americans for nigh on many years and and equally dismayed from the perspective of our faith with the choices offered to us um, as Catholics. But um, so I don't want it to just seem as if I, I don't want us to seem to be partisan in our criticism criticism of Biden because oh, we can no. just as easily go on a rant the other direction. Sure, but, um, but at the moment, this is the person who we have in power, so it is worth noting that among the many other things that that means is that Biden has pledged broad and novel legal protections or legal support for uh, for abortion, which is which is our national tragedy. Now, I and, and our national scourge, I. It has been a frustration for me for quite some time that the Republican Party, when it is in power, appoints judges who are opposed to abortion, but largely has not taken advantage of the power that it has to restrict abortion to the extent that it could. So that the sort of defund Planned Parenthood movement, Lila Rose, who's like one of the you know the most serious pro-lifers of her generation, Lila Rose has been a critic of uh, one of the loudest voices of criticism of the fact that the Republicans did very, very little to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, very, very, very little to restrict access to uh, to abortion. And um, and I'm frustrated with that. At the state level, you see really interesting things. You and I have talked about before that actually some of the most interesting pro-life legislation that you see at the state level is being passed by pro-life Democrats in Louisiana. Uh, but there is a difference, and, and frankly, a difference in my frustration between not doing enough uh, to end the scourge of abortion and enabling it and facilitating it. Yes. Uh, since you since you seem to be concerned that any new listeners to this podcast might come under the misapprehension that I have any kind of partisan affiliation or loyalty rather than contempt for both sides, which <laughs> Google around, folks, you'll find it without too much difficulty. Um, I, I would I would note that uh, yes, the Republican Party, broadly speaking, uh, tries to fob off people with sincere pro life. Uh, priorities by offering them judicial appointments, which in their heart of hearts, they know aren't really going to do anything because you can have all of the so-called pro-life judges you like below the level of the Supreme Court. It isn't going to make a damn bit of difference as long as Roe v. Wade is on the books. So that's, you know, that, that does, that's a meaningless gesture um, because it's all just going to go up to the Supreme Court and be interpreted either in the light of Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood v. Casey or, or similar. So, you know, it, it is a, it is a hollow gift. Um, and then they go all performative uh, legislatively as soon as they're in the minority and they try to do things like pass the pain capable abortion survivors act and similar pieces of legislation, which feature exactly nowhere in their priorities when they're in the majority. Right, Why? Exactly. Because they don't actually care. They just want your votes. So uh, that having that, that having been said, I have a question for you before you say, before you move on. While I was talking about that, you were gesturing, you were gesticulating wildly. Um, you were making a sort of gesture where you put your thumb and your index finger together and move your fingers around. You seem to be moving your jaw around. You had a great deal of gesticulation. And I wasn't sure, this happens a lot on the show, actually, when we're recording the show. And I'm never sure, Ed, if you're just 
so caught up in whatever it is that I'm saying, so moved by my rhetoric, or if you're trying to like say something to me, or I'm trying, I'm supposed to understand what that means. Or if you're wanting to like jump in and you're trying to convey to me that I should stop talking so you can talk. Can you, I mean, and I know that our, our listeners can't see this, but can you just help me understand what that gesticulation was about? Because at the end of every podcast, I, I turn, we turn off the recording and then I think, I wonder what the hell Ed was waving his hands around for. Uh, sometimes it is just me trying to externalize an interruption I'm not making because I'm sensitive ah. to the, you know, the, e, the, e, the listening pleasure of our, of our uh, dear subscribers. And so I don't want to um, have the two of us talking over each other in an unseemly manner, especially if we were about to have a heated agreement because, you know, it's <laughs> tedious for everyone. Uh, sometimes I am in fact, uh, tripping over and coming up short thinking you were about to pause and I, ah. I might, I might jump in, but, uh, I'm often wrong about that. <laughs> um, in, in this case, it was mostly because I was agreeing with what you were, what you were saying. And, you know, if, if people need to hear me say it, that's fine. But yeah, I have, I have publicly said before that I, I you know, it's nothing stimulates my gag reflex, like referring to the Trump administration as the most pro-life in history. Um, but that having been said, I think there's little reason to doubt that Joe Biden will be as good as his word and his will be the most pro-abortion administration in history. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. Um, okay. Well, what's interesting is that was a nice diversion, but it was not actually what, and, and an important conversation, I think, but it was not actually what you and I were planning to talk about. So now here we are um, yes. into the show. And uh, and what we were going to talk about was uh, um, what happened on Wednesday at the Bishop's Conference, um, because there was well, <laughs> some things happened for our nation, but some things happened for the Bishop's Conference as well. Uh, it wasn't quite on Wednesday that it all happened, though. It was True. Tuesday. So what, what happened on Tuesday was this, which is you and I uh, finished our, our daily toil at the pillar. Uh, we, we'd written some things. You'd written a thing saying, uh, so the U.S. bishops need to decide what to do about Joe Biden. This isn't going to go well, as I recall. Right. And a big piece of it was there's going to be some triangulation between that Biden's going to try to sort of triangulate the Vatican, the U.S. bishops and the White House. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we logged off for the day at, you know, a normal hour of 8 p.m. Eastern or something like that. And uh, then some embargoed text came through for us, as it did to several journalists. Right. We um, obtained a we obtained a statement that uh, we obtained a statement late Tuesday night that um, USCCB President Archbishop Jose Gomez intended to, to release uh, at 9 a.m. the next day at 9 a.m. Wednesday, the morning of Wednesday, an, an inauguration day. And it was a letter uh, or statement, I suppose, on the inauguration of uh, incoming President Joe Biden. Yes. And in this, uh, Archbishop Gomez reiterated some of what he had said uh, many times before, most recently in the at the end of the USCCB Fall General Assembly in November, saying basically that we now have a, a Catholic president and this is something of a historical novelty. And it presents a unique set of challenges and opportunities in the opportunities column. Surely the Biden administration will be much more conversant in language of faith that President Biden will be much more comfortable uh, as a as a man of religion. Uh, I, I forget the exact phrase Archbishop Gomez used, but that he said it basically it would be refreshing to talk to a president who has a lived experience of faith and who has spoken very movingly about his personal experience of faith and dealing with personal tragedy and this sort of thing. He also noted that there are a number of policy priorities with which the bishops would agree with the White House, the preferential option for the poor, the need to reform health care, uh, immigration, 
the end to the death penalty, all of these things. And that's great. However, that none of these areas of agreement were going to obscure, mitigate, or in some way push to one side the U.S. bishop's preeminent priority of ending the genocide of legal abortion in this country. And Archbishop Gomez said they were committed to announcing this moral truth in season and out. In other words, (laughs) sorry if this rains on your parade, but this is still a big deal and it's not going to go away and we're not going to pretend like it's not a big deal. Right. And good for them, I would have said, Uh, except I didn't get the chance because... Well, so we we wrote we obtained this late Tuesday night, and you wrote it up um, with the anticipation that we would run uh, Tuesday morning at nine Wednesday morning at nine o'clock when the conference let out um, released a statement that we would run a story that we had you know a, a story that summarized it. And, I mistakenly uh, thought I if I wrote this thing up at you know eleven o'clock or whatever it was that you know this would give me a relaxed morning, but I'd wake up you know we'd have we'd have this covered whatever and and, and was I was grateful that you, I was grateful that you did. Because, uh, yeah, I was, I was grateful that you did, and I read it over in the morning. I did a radio show yesterday morning, and, uh, and then I, I was going to run it. Now, in journalism, generally speaking, you know, if you get an embargoed copy of something that is to be released and you're going to respect the embargo, which ordinarily you are because it's the ethical and right thing to do, um, if you get an embargoed copy of something, usually what you do is you wait until the released copy comes out, um, and then you... Uh, uh, and check it against story. Check it against it to make sure that they didn't change anything at the last minute or something like that. And then you you run the story. So I waited nine o'clock, nine ten, nine fifteen, um, Eastern. So seven o'clock here in Colorado, seven fifteen, seven twenty. You know, just just kind of waiting. And I had edited the copy, and I had a photo, and I was all set to go, and it didn't come out. And about nine fifteen, I started hearing uh, Eastern. I started hearing from sources close to the bishop's conference who said this is going to be delayed and then sources close to the bishop's conference who said that it wasn't going to come out and that the expectation wasn't going was that it wasn't going to come out and we both started talking to sources here in the united states and uh sources in rome vatican sources uh many people who uh we when i said we started telling us a rather fantastic we started telling us a rather fantastic story that's right that's right what did they tell us that well, they told us that uh, sometime in the in the waning hours of Tuesday, when this this statement was not only circulated under embargo to press, but it was also put out basically for the U.S. bishops to be aware of ahead of its release in the morning. Several of them, uh, what's the word I want to use? They went a little shouty crackers, JD. They- <laughs> yes, yeah, some bishops objected strenuously uh, when they obtained a copy of the statement on Tuesday night. They objected strenuously. Uh, to its release. And, uh, and that became a subject of some disagreement among uh, the leadership of the bishops conference and some other bishops about whether it was appropriate to release a statement that was um, seen as an indictment of the Biden policy agenda on the day of the Biden inauguration, whether that would be the right foot what, on, with which to start on which may to start I make with an the Biden observation about this. You may indeed. So I'm sensitive to the the idea that, you know, uh, is this really how we want to kick off as a as a conference? As the Catholic Church in the United States, you know, is this really the first foot they want to put over the line on inauguration morning? Guy hasn't even put his hand on the Bible yet. Uh, is this really the tone you want to set? And I thought about this and I thought, well, are they being kind of grouchy here? Is there no Bishop's room? To, yeah. Is there no room to have, you know, a day of like, okay, we've had a fairly emotional, politically unstable couple of weeks to say nothing of election cycle. Maybe we just, you know, have a day of flags and fun. 
um, even if paying for those flags did in fact go to paying for abortions, but whatever, you know, maybe we just, you know, we would just take a day. Um, then I thought about, I thought, no, because you, we have discussed before and you have written about not too long ago, last week, in fact, um, about the sometime difficulty that the USCCB has in getting its statements and releases noticed and getting a bit of cut through and doing things in a timely manner. They often release statements well after the fact and these kinds of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one was going to be on the bleeding edge of the news cycle. The more I thought about Mm -hmm. it, the more I thought, yeah, this is exactly the time to do it. It it struck me that they had gotten, that they had done with this statement in terms of timing and stuff, they had sort of in my own view, done it right, and that they were going to release a statement about something that was happening on the day that it was happening, and that it was a pretty, it was an, uh, it was not a, it was an unambiguous statement. It was balanced. I thought, in my view, uh, which is sure, just my it view, was certainly I it was, nonpartisan. In my view, I thought it was balanced and fair. But again, um, that's just my view. Um, but in my view, it was balanced, and it, it sort of recognized the good and the bad. Um, but uh, but I appreciated that it was coming out on the day that of the thing that it was talking about instead of a couple of days. Later, but some bishops did not appreciate that. They thought that it was inappropriate, the wrong tone with which to begin a relationship between the bishops and the Biden administration. Um, there was some fighty fighty, uh, as we're told by our sources, among several bishops about this. And then, and then the phone. Somebody rings. threw his uh, somebody threw his toys out of the pram and decided to call Daddy. Pram. If you are not from England, if you are an American. Uh, like me, which is probably the only reason why you'd be all that much concerned with this story. If you are an American, a pram is a stroller. Ed, proceed. Thank you. Uh, One or more U.S. bishops, uh, apparently either led by or in concert with, or at least uh, in consultation with Cardinal Subic of Chicago, alerted Rome to the statement. uh, Contacted the Vatican Secretary of State and said, Seem seem to have said this statement is coming out, and we do not wish for for the statement to be released. And the Secretary mm-hmm. of State, as near as we can reconstruct events, said that's interesting. The Holy Father also, as is customary, intends to release a statement shortly after the inauguration, effectively being nice to um, the president, as one head of state tends to do to another. And we we might decide we want to put our thumb on the scales here and see if we can uh, see if we can spike this thing. So it seems that the Secretary of State told the U.S. Bishops Conference after some disagreement that either the statement would need to be not not issued or delayed. And maybe they began with not issued and then it made its way to delayed after some pushback. My understanding of it is the preference in line with uh, some U.S. bishops who had wanted to junk the statement entirely and rewrite it themselves in a a much more... um, I don't want to use the word fawning because, uh, you know, I didn't see the suggested alternative text, but certainly in a, in a much more warm and friendly uh, pitch and timber to the incoming administration. Uh, they wanted the whole thing gone, but as I've understood it, it was gradually accepted uh, both with among the U.S. bishops and also in Rome that um, the shit was out of the horse on this one already, that the text of the thing had been sent under embargo to journalists uh, it had actually appeared already on on one site that you know missed the fact that it hadn't been published and the embargo hadn't. Been I lifted. think probably had just said that expected that it was going to come out and then didn't check it again. So yeah, a mistake exactly. that that can happen. I mean, well, this is the pro- this is why this is the risk of automating something on the expectation that you know um, just a thing that can happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a thing that can happen. So I mean, it was out there. It, it you yeah, know right, yeah. the the toothpaste was not going back in the tube on this one, and I think it was accepted that trying to alter in any meaningful way, still less totally suppress 
Archbishop Gomez's letter would have created an even bigger story than. Well, I think you fast forwarded a little bit because there was some there was some discussion about whether or not between Rome and the U.S. Bishops Conference about whether or not it would be entirely shelved or just delayed. And there was concern that if a statement came out from the president of the U.S. Bishops before a statement came out from the pope, then that would sort of paint the Pope in a corner in terms of what he might say to the Biden administration. And one of the things that I have been talking about for a while is the fact that Biden, the the Biden administration, because Biden has conflicts with the U.S. bishops and um, runs on his Catholic identity, has um, has a political need to um, uh, promote the fact that he has a positive relationship with the Holy See. So Biden has a desire to promote that he has a, a political relationship with the Holy See and a personal relationship with the Pope because he runs on Catholic identity and has this conflict with the U.S. bishops over abortion. So there was concern that the Pope might be painted in a corner if the bishops put out a statement first and these kinds of things. And um, before a decision was made about what to do, the Pillar reported a story about this. Well, yeah, we reported it first. Obviously. We reported that, that this had happened and that the Holy See had intervened to spike the story. And it's my understanding that largely because a new story came out saying that the Holy See had spiked it, at that point, the USCCB was in a position to say, what else are we supposed to do, save for putting out the, the letter? Like, even though it had been reported by 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 uh, a media outlet, you know, there's a possibility of like, well, we're just going to let it ride. But once it became a to-do that um, that this had happened, then it was sort of like, well, we have to we have to release it. Sure. I, I I didn't want to take a curtain call. For I, I don't want to make us the story. I just want to tell the sequence of events. We, sure. Um, I think that probably uh, yes. our reporting and, and we, what we reported is what we knew that the Vatican, that the secretary of state had intervened to spike the story and that it would either be delayed or shelved. And, uh, and then three hours after we reported that it, the, the statement was published. Yes. I think uh, there, there's a pretty clear post hoc ergo propter hoc um, to that sequence of events. And we know this because other Catholic outlets attempted to fact check us uh, on this and were basically told no they're right yeah a a, a, a a leading catholic magazine in america reported on this and was told by their sources in rome what the pillar reported is is true um so that kind of reasonable to say was reasonable to say yes i think the way so um so so that's all very interesting and then the statement came out you know um and uh but that's not the end of the story i mean that's not even the most interesting part of this. I mean, it's super interesting. Actually, no, this is the, all foreplay. We need to like actually get to the fun part. So which what is, happened after that is. What, are you telling the story or am I? We're telling the story. Okay. Um, so where that got us to was, of course, this statement having been the subject of public controversy um, before it came out was still the subject of public controversy when it was eventually released. And a number of bishops lined up to publicly and vocally and pointedly support Archbishop Gomez in what he said to to underline that this is what we have been talking about in the Bishops' Conference for quite some months now. This is what we talked about in our Fall General Assembly in November. This is why we started a task force specifically to come up with um, things like this to address the unique challenges and opportunities of working with a administration led by a president who is Catholic and publicly dissents from the church's moral teaching on some fairly key, not to say preeminent um, matters. So they all lined up to do that. And then um, a few, a clutch, more than a brace uh, of bishops led by Cardinal Supich had a sort of, well, I don't want to say stampy feety tantrum. So you but- see that, but I, I, I'm not aware of that. I saw a statement from Cardinal Supich, but I, I'm not aware of, I'm not aware of a, 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 a wave i'm aware of a, a i didn't singular. say wave but you're saying you're saying a group and i'm only aware of a singular oh i said more than a brace which is more than two and, right but uh, i'm not even aware of two 
Well, there were other bishops who put out statements basically throwing shade. They didn't explicitly call okay. out um, okay. Archbishop well, Gomez like Cardinal Subic did. But for example, um, Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego put out a, I mean, if you want to call it a coded criticism of the statement, I suppose you could, but I mean, this is, you, you didn't need the Enigma machine to read this one. Um, put out a, a thinly coded criticism of the statement. Yeah. And Bishop John Stowe put out a, criti- a, a, a tweeted a thinly veiled criticism of the committee to the bishop's committee to sort of address the issue right. of President Biden. But Cardinal Supic put out something much more direct than that. Cardinal Supic did a basically not my president um, on Archbishop Gomez. He called the statement ill-judged. Uh, he called it unprecedented and uh, basically said, I, I mean, I'm, I'm cutting out some verbiage here, but basically he said, I wasn't consulted and how very dare you. Yeah, what he what he said was he tweeted on Wednesday afternoon. I'm just gonna. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops issued an ill-considered statement on the day of President Biden's inauguration. Aside from the fact that there's seemingly no precedent for doing so, so ill-considered, unprecedented, a surprise to many bishops. And then he said it was crafted without the involvement of the administrative committee, a collegial consultation. That is the normal course for statements that represent and enjoy the continued endorsement for the American bishops. Then he says the internal institutional failures involved must be addressed. I mean, this is a very he put out a and I look forward to contributing to all the efforts to that end. Um, this was, he put out a very strong statement saying that the, that a, a very strong tweet thread saying that, uh, you know, the conference put out an ill-considered statement and, uh, and that there were internal institutional failures that led to it. That is a, that's very strong criticism for a bishop to make of the USCCB. If a congressman said this about the United States House of Representatives, people would think, well, that's, they wouldn't blink, but bishops don't generally talk this way about their disagreements with each other. No, they don't. And, and for the purposes of our listenership, J.D., could you please list for me the committee chairs and or uh, memberships of Cardinal Supic at the USCCB? I don't know what committees he belongs is to. He he is he on the executive not, committee? He is not on the executive committee. Is he, he on is, this special working group for dealing with... He is not uh, on the special working group. I see. Um, so basically, Cardinal Supic's statement amounts to... I wasn't consulted. This tail doesn't get wagged by that dog. How very dare you? But I think that is a reasonable interpretation. Yes. Um, so, you know, fine. I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a petulant and identifying way to conduct oneself on Twitter, but you know, there you go. I have um, in the interests of uh, taking my lumps for their owed. I have in the past publicly called repeatedly for bishops to stop feigning unity where there is no. Right. I, I, I want to be fair-minded here. And, and, and it's sort of somewhat immaterial what I think of, what I think of it in that way. But what is true is that it is, uh, it is, a strikingly different tone from a bishop, a strikingly different tone from a bishop about the USCCB, uh, that bishops don't generally speak about their disagreements with each other or about the conference in this way, in this country, in this conference. Well, I, the thing is, if, if there was merit to the criticism, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with him voicing it publicly. I'd question whether Twitter's the way to do it. I, I think there are perhaps more dignified fora available. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't have any objection to doing so in public. What I do take issue with is the idea that the administrative committee is owed uh, a yeah, voice. Yeah, I'll process. actually have something that's out by the time this podcast airs that talks about this, that takes a substantive look at this idea that the administrative committee should have been consulted. Because um, I, I think, I, I, in short, and you can read this at, at, at the pillar, but in short, it does not seem to me that the, there is merit to the idea that a statement from the president of the conference would ordinarily go through the administrative committee, which is a very large, 
rather unwieldy committee of the conference, which is mostly charged with the task of like setting the agenda for the meeting. Um, it's a big committee because it has regional representatives, the heads of major committees. I think I think that Cardinals might be ex officio members, but I, I don't quote me on that. Anyway, it's a very big, very unwieldy committee. And there are, if the, if the administrative committee itself is going to make a statement, that would go through the administrative committee. If there's a, some statement that's going to be um, passed by the entire body of the bishops, that would make its way through the administrative committee. But that's an extremely kind of rare circumstance. So this- um, Especially when you that, have dedicated committees for producing- When you have statements. dedicated committees for producing certain statements and when a statement from the president is issued from the president. So the president is required to consult with the relevant committee heads, but um, it's, it's not- insofar as I can tell, and I've talked with a lot of bishops about this today, a custom of the conference that this administrative committee consultation would be required. It struck me as being rather thin gruel. With that said, I think that what we have now is um, something out in the open that most people have seen for quite some time, a disagreement between the conference leadership and um, what may prove to be a cadre of bishops that are sort of uh, led by Cardinal Supic, a disagreement about the direction of the conference, the tone of the conference, the style of the conference, maybe four bishops that comes up from time to time, um, but is not sort of openly acknowledged. The bishops talk and are polite to each other. The closest it probably came to being openly acknowledged was the sort of great McElroy Shapu amendment fight of 18, right? The 2000, at the 2018 fall meeting, there was talk about whether or not to include a paragraph in a, in a text and a paragraph proposed by Cardinal Supich. Proposed it and Bishop McElroy supported it, but in supporting it, he also went on a, a tangent that was not directly related to the motion about the language of preeminent priorities of abortion and, uh, and Archbishop Shapu, who supported the inclusion of the paragraph of Cardinal Supic, uh, kind of responded to Bishop McElroy to shut down his objection to the use of the language of preeminent priority and got a, a, a rather serious round of applause from the body of bishops. Yeah, yeah, that's because Bishop McElroy, in the process of proceeding to sort of jab his finger in the chest of almost every other bishop in the room, uh, took it upon himself to say that if you call abortion the preeminent concern of the Catholic Church in this country as a social concern, you are going against Pope Francis, right? Um, which is false on its face. Right. <clears throat> it is also nowhere within the competence of the Bishop of San Diego to make that determination, still less try and shove it down the throats of his colleagues. Uh, so that was primarily what Archbishop Shapiro um, was addressing at the time, as I recall. He stood up and he said, and I remember when this happened, we were both in the room and it was it was quite a... It, it, it was a moment of some drama. It was um, a moment of some drama. Yeah. But he, he Archbishop Shapiro made it perfectly clear that he was very happy, including the larger text that Cardinal Supic had proposed, but that this idea that it was for Bishop McElroy to determine what is the authentic papal magisterium for and to the body of the U.S. bishops uh, had to be slapped down. And um, indeed it was with applause. And nevertheless, you know, I think you're right that we are that what we are seeing in this sort of, you know, extreme minority reaction to Archbishop Gomez's uh, statement on Inauguration Day is this desire of the t of a very small tail to wag the larger dog and the the displeasure that and, and I think there is an element of this. I think when we consider the the fact, the timeline, the fact pattern that we've been talking about, um, about attempts, you know, by and, and let's give, for example, Cardinal Supic uh, the full due he's claiming in, in terms of his status here, a member of the administrative committee um, to be able to exercise veto power over the president of the conference to speak in his own name, still less in concert or consultation with a special working group 
formed by the U.S. bishops for the purposes of articulating how the bishops' conference will um, engage with the Biden administration. I, I think um, the sense of frustration that is leaking out uh, it, among this this small uh, clutch of bishops is, I think, has been building for some time, and they are very, very annoyed that yeah. they keep saying, "We are really in charge here. You all need to get in line," and the other bishops just aren't doing it. I, I think that is the narrative. I think the narrative is there is, uh, yeah, there has been longstanding frustration that is now mounting and coming to the fore. What I don't think is true is, is you know, so all of that is novel in the Bishops' Conference. It's not novel if you listen to Ed and I talk about this stuff on shows, because we've been talking on the podcast for a while about the internal dynamics of the Bishops' Conference, but for it to be so out there that it's like a t- tweet thread is uh, is not typical. And so this is all coming to the fore, and the Bishops, uh, no doubt there will be if there is a if there's a June meeting of the conference, which TBD, but I kind of doubt it. But if there's anything other than an internet meeting of the conference, you know this will all kind of play out there and and all that. But um, but what I what I see some people saying is sort of like this is a war, and uh, I don't think it mm-hmm. is. And the reason I don't think it's sort of a war within the conference is because I don't think this is sort of the bishops' conference is split over this. What I think it is is kind of what you've described. There, there is a small group of bishops who are discontented about the about the leadership cadre of the of the conference and the general tone and direction of the conference, especially on political engagement and and um, issues that have largely to do with sort of advocacy on for the promotion and defense of life um, that have been pushing back against that and as they grow in frustration have been pushing back ever more vocally, but truthfully, I think that seeing the thing come to the fore in this way means that it may well sputter out because what they're, what I don't expect these bishops are going to get is a large cadre of supporters to say, yeah, we're with you. We agree with you. Yeah. I, it, it will be interesting to see if, and how this plays out. Like you said, it will be interesting to see if there is in fact a conference meeting in June. There of course wasn't one last year. Uh, so something I've talked to a fair few bishops in the last day and a half, as I know you have as well. And um, a point that's been made more than once to me is it's not even so much a question of direction that a lot of this hinges on tone that um, some of the, some of the objections to Archbishop Gomez's letter were not so much about the content, particularly in Rome, for example, that, you know, there was this sort of, you know, uh, general uh, line being taken that, well, you shouldn't go so hard about abortion uh, on inauguration day. And that's not what I understood to be Rome's objection. Rome thought the tone needed to be, softened and um but you know pope francis has compared abortion to hiring a hitman and to nazi eugenics so i think where the pope stands on this issue is pretty clear he's uh said to several u.s bishops during their ad limina visits and they've said it publicly that he said it to them that of course abortion is the preeminent priority of the church in the united states rightly so um so there's no there's no question of where the holy father sits and all that it's a question of tone and so is the criticism of those who have been criticizing. So, for example, I, I talked to more than one bishop uh, today who suggested to me that it was it was as much a question of Cardinal Supich's tone, not just in his um, Twitter thread, uh, but also in his conduct across several uh, recent USCCB assemblies dating back to November 2018, that he's adopted a frankly finger-wagging approach to the other bishops, that he's accused them at various times of ingratitude, that he's sought to tell them what they may and may not speak on, what it is and isn't appropriate for them to say uh, in their own diocese. And, um, you know, 
not many bishops take kindly to being told, uh, still less being told off by one of their peers, uh, particularly one that hasn't been elected to, you know, lead the conference. Uh, and, you know, there is a conference executive. Lead, they are elected by the bishops yeah. to speak for them on certain issues. They're elected to certain committees to speak for the bishops on certain issues. And to the last time I checked, Cardinal Subic hasn't been elected to any of these. So I, I have some sympathy with the bishops who, who sort of quietly grumble that, you know, yeah, all right, the guy's got a red sash, but that doesn't give him the right to tell me what I can do. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so I I, don't, I expect that this is, it's not that I expect that this is going to sputter out. I just don't think it's going to go the way that some people are sort of seeing it as this kind of all out war. I take, I take your point that there aren't, there isn't an even enough distribution yeah. of numbers to make this a pitched battle. But, but I do think, you know, it's something we're going to be following for a little while, but because we're going to be following it for a little while, Ed, what we're going to do now is a little, we're going to have a little educational time. And we're just going to talk about a question that a lot of people have, which is uh, to say, um, what is an Episcopal conference? We're going to talk about what an Episcopal conference is, why it is, what it's for, what its history is, the nature, mission, and juridic ident- theological and juridic identity of Episcopal, of conferences Episcopal. Are we going to and the law? We are going to go to the law. So from the events <laughs> to the law. So Ed, if you were to, uh, if you were to begin with the law in this conversation that we're about to have about Episcopal, about conferences Episcopal, uh, where would you go? I, I would be turning, I think, probably to Book Two, Part Book Two, the two. Hierarchical Constitution of the Church, the Hierarchical Constitution of their Church, and the uh, I believe the second section of Book Two, Part Two, particular churches and their groupings, groupings of particular churches, conferences of bishops. So you would be turning it to Canon, around right about four seventy-seven. Sorry, four forty-seven. Yes, you would. Canon four forty-seven. A conference of bishops, a permanent institution, is a group of bishops of some nation or certain territory. First of all, that's a rare kind of clause uh, for the for the uh, for the code. It's more pleasantly written than is often the case for these definitional co- canons in the code. But a conference of bishops, a permanent institution, is a group of bishops of some nation or territory who jointly exercise certain pastoral functions for the Christian faithful of their territory in order to promote the greater good which the church offers to humanity especially through forms and programs of the apostolate fittingly adapted to the circumstances of time and place according to the norm of law, a conference of bishops, a permanent institution, a permanent institution is a group of bishops of some nation or certain territory. No, you've already read it, J.D. Uh, yeah, but I read fast and maybe people didn't No, hear you don't it. read fast. You, you read it very well. And then you read it a second <laughs> time out loud. And you do this every time we go to the law. We all, we all heard you. Because people are in their car. Maybe they didn't hear if there's a particular clause you want to focus on, let's focus on that one. Where would you like to begin? Uh, I, okay, so I, I would say that is an inter- that is a, that is a nice thumbnail sketch of of the why Episcopal conferences that um, the law you know the law suggests that you have them that they are intended to permit a certain amount of coordination between diocesan bishops who, of course, uh, you know the the apostle for their sees that this isn't meant to supplant or or replace their authority that they are usually national they don't have to be they don't have to be national they can be both multinational or semi-national yeah. in other words they can, can they can include several countries or a part of a country but their function is to promote the greater good especially through forms and programs of the apostolate so 
the, the primary function of the bishops conference is to coordinate such efforts as lend themselves to coordination for the good of souls and for the common good. That's right. Um, there are a few functions that bishops conferences have by the law. So there are a few things that the bishops conference can legislate about bishops, bishops conferences can like set the age of confirmation and set rules about ordinary and extraordinary financial administration and things like that. They can set some liturgical things. Um, and that is their, the only place in which bishops conferences can ordinarily legislate. So one question that comes up a lot is like, is my bishop under the authority of the USCCB or subject of the authority of the USCCB? The answer to that is no, except for these very few places where the bishop is, where the conference is permitted to legislate for the entire, for the, for its entire territory. The conference is not conceived or intended to be a deliberative body. Right, it is, exactly. Although it, it has better some under, deliberative functions. It has some, but those are very much narrowly circumscribed yes. under the either explicit provision of the universal law or granted to it specifically by the Holy See. Um, and everything else, it, it's better to, I always say, it's better to consider the, the Bishop's Conference more as a sort of activist trade union than um, a, well, no, but I, you're laughing, but it's, it's, is, it, is that not true? That well, I think there's a certain degree of truth to it. It's just, it's not, <laughs> I think there's a certain degree of truth to it that, yes, I mean, you have uh, these people who all are in the same kind of position who are engaging together, and then they do some sort of lobbying activity. But I think it's probably best to frame an Episcopal conference in a sort of theological context, which is to say that an Episcopal oh, conference no, 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 is no, an no. application of the collegiality that uh, that bishops are called to which bishops are called and which is no. essential to Episcopal identity. I'm not having you lend. I know you're not. But administrative you, and uh, holy human. Th- this is the problem. This is the problem. I I think there are a lot of people who tend to think about the bishops' conference in purely in a purely functional way. And, uh, and it's a deficiency. And look, I, I think it's a deficiency to do that because the bishop's conference, which is entirely a creature of not just entirely a creature of, of human law, but entirely a creature of very recent human law. I mean, bishop's conferences have only been around like for 130 years or something like that um, and only really been codified for 40 years. Um, but the reason the U.S. Bishops Conference is like it only settled on a final name, name like twenty like years twenty ago. years ago, exactly right. So I mean, so these are very recent things, but if we don't ground them, I think in a theological identity, then we think, oh, it's just a trade union, and it's um and and it's it's not important, and we can be kind of lost in this functionalism with it, and we miss that the that the conference has an important function that helps us to understand what its limitations should be, that the conference is an application of, of, of Episcopal collegiality, an application of the unity bishops are called to, um, and, and that therefore there's a value to them just coming together and being brothers and talking about ministry with each other and praying together and celebrating mass together. But the conference is not sort of the fullest expression of Episcopal collegiality. The conference is not the college of bishops. Um, no, th- there is in the church, the institution of the college of bishops. And when the college of bishops, which is to say all of the bishops in the world in communion with each other and with the Pope are, are acting in some way, that is a, that's a deeply sort of theological, ecclesiological reality. The conference is a kind of an application of that, but understanding that it's not the fullness of Episcopal collegiality helps us to see it has a very limited, it is a very limited reality and therefore can't take on sort of more than is appropriate to it. It can't sort of take on the identity of a mini ecumenical council because- I was about to say, it's not a particular council. It's not this a particular not... council, right? It's, it's, it's not a particular council, which is a particular kind of expression of, of ecclesiastical governance, but it is this theological reality of bishops being united to each other in brotherhood. And that's a good in itself. 
And it, I think if we understand that that's a good in itself, then we understand the conference doesn't have to do something. The conference doesn't have to be focused on like doing something. And let's make sure that we're putting out a ton of statements and lobbying on this and teaching on this, because the reason why the Holy See wants the bishops to come together is not to achieve a crap ton of stuff. It's to be together and to be brothers. And I say that because I think sometimes the functionalist idea of the conference that you're talking about is the one that feeds the idea that the conference should just be producing volume after volume after volume of paper that often doesn't get read. All right, said contra. I, I accept everything you've just said. And I, <laughs> no, hang on, hang on. I, I, I accept where you're going with it. Um, that, you know, yes, it is true that there is an important theological significance to bishops acting in concert to bishops being together, to expressing magisterial and personal and spiritual communion. That that is all important. I would agree with that. What I will strongly push back on is trying to lay a sort of theological significance over or patina over the actual rude mechanics of national bishops' conferences, because they are not ecclesiological of ecclesiological importance or significance. They are a purely uh, they are purely a mechanism of convenience, that they are a creation of the law to recognize what may help certain practical functions, which we just picked apart in the law, defining what they are and what they're for, um, according to the circumstances of time or place. And what I don't like is when you see, uh, for example, people trying to treat uh, deliberations in the conference as a sort of liturgical event or that any word that proceedeth from uh, the conference floor has magisterial weight, that this is not its primary function, that I think bishops' conferences are, um, they are artificial constructs of the law, and I think that's a good thing, and I think it can be important not to overvalue and not to over-theologize um, what is essentially a tool. And I think that the reason that's important is because it then clears a space for the bishops to have uh, what we have been calling for for some a while, time. a particular council, a particular council, and a, do the thing right if they have things that you want right. to do, so, or even have a synod, and that's fine. But in the meantime, to have frank conversations and not feel like they have to treat it like they're arguing in the Basilica of St. Peter's and need to do so in hushed tones, that I'm all for them having grown up conversations amongst equals. And I'm in favor of them having them in public and I'm having of having disagreements with each other in public. I think that is healthy. I think treating the bishops conference as a quasi solemn institution encourages the sublimation of obvious disagreements which leads to resentment which leads to gossip which leads to factionalism which leads to explosions on twitter when people just can't take it anymore so i i agree with you and i i agree with you and i don't i mean i i agree with you that the episcopal conference is a tool i think the question the place where you and i might disagree is a tool for what and I, I think maybe there's a lot of confusion about that in the life of the church altogether. The conference is not a tool for the sake of making some national set of rules of, of, of laws for the church in the United States. And the reason we know that agree. is because the church in the United States could, if it wanted to, have a particular council. It has, in fact, had particular had councils. Particular councils, by the way, are things which can be convoked in which the bishops come together and can, through a, a mechanism particular canonical mechanism, make laws for the whole of the church in the United States. This exists, and Ed and I have been saying for a while, it would be a good time for the church in the U.S. Well, it, it, it would be a good time of soon for the, I don't think they're quite ready, but it'd be a good time soon for the bishops in the U.S. to have uh, a particular council. So that's a tool for making rules. 
the conference is a tool as well. And it, it would, it's, it's, it's a problem when people sort of confuse the conference with a tool for making rules. It's also a problem when people confuse the conference for a tool for defining doctrine, as if every meeting of the conference is um, a meeting of the Council of Trent, and they're going to sort of fight about doctrinal things and then vote. And then based upon what they vote, we're going to believe that the Holy Spirit has helped us to legitimately interpret Catholic doctrine. That, that, that is not a tool what the conference is for either. The conference is a tool for being together. And, you know, that might sound hokey, but um, if it does, you have to blame our Lord because we're two or more gathered in our name, in my name, there shall I be. And for bishops being together, um, if, if the church is a communion and the Pope is the, is the, you know, the, the Pope is sort of the principle of communion in the life of the church and the bishops in communion with him are animating principles of that being together has a genuine value in the life of the church coming together to pray and, and like break open the word together and talk about their pastoral action together. That's like a fundamentally Christian reality. And it doesn't have to have this outcome of making rules or defining doctrine for it to be a good thing. It can say, we can say Episcopal conferences are a tool for the concrete application of the collegial spirit. And you may not like that, but that's what John Paul II says they're for. And I think that helps us not make them into these other things. First of all, I, I'd just like to compliment you on the way you, at the end there, just slyly established the premise of, if I disagree with you, I disagree with JP too. Because I'm reading was, from him. Brother, you should have read Apostolos Suos. That was, that was very, that was, that was, that was high quality snark there. You were just about to say, I disagree. And I was thinking, no. maybe I wait and then say, then you disagree with John Paul too, yo. Actually, what I was trying to break in to say is I agree with 90% of what you just <laughs> said. And you're setting up a straw man saying that I'm in some way promoting the idea that bishops' conferences exist to do things and they should do more things. And they should I'm not saying you to... think that. I'm saying that's a common misconception yeah. about bishops' conferences. Obvious. And I would like, I would like the bishops' conference to do less in that yes. regard. I think that they, I mean, today, today being Thursday, I have in my inbox at least four USCCB statements that I haven't gotten around to reading that they have released in the space of I think four hours this morning. And I'm sure some of them are extremely important. I'm sure some of them are extremely interesting. Maybe all of them are all extremely important and all of them interesting. But you know what? If you fire out four four hours, I can't get to all of them. Yeah. So I, I would like them to sometimes take a breath, focus on maybe the important things like getting a statement out on the incoming policy agenda of a president on inauguration day. I, I was in favor of that one. like that. So I, I'm not saying the USCCB exists to do stuff for the sake of doing stuff. And I do accept that there is, as I said earlier, a real theological significance to bishops being together, to exercising communal fraternity. I think that is important. I thought one of the things that um, one of the things that the bishops of the United States have done that probably helped them the most, and certainly there seems to be no shortage of bishops who would agree with this, is when they all went on a retreat together. Yeah, that retreat in awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. which Pope Francis basically ordered them to do and right. sent the preacher to the papal household. Uh, Father, now is he Cardinal Cantalamesa? Cardinal Cantalamesa was sent to um, to send to preach them. And I more of that sort of thing, absolutely. But I guess what I'm saying is if that's something that's important and if that's something bishops need to do is spend more time living together, going on retreats together, living in a spirit of um, Episcopal fraternity, I think it's all great. And I think they should do that. I don't think that you get that experience or can get that experience on the conference floor of a Baltimore hotel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is when I say don't theologize and don't put a spiritual patina on committee meetings. I'm not suggesting that there isn't a theological aspect to bishops acting in concert in any way. I'm just saying that 
I think there's a tendency to try and by superimposing the one on the other, you're actually in the end sublimating the real need to do it right. Right. Which is why the Pope had to tell them you all need to go on a retreat. What's the matter with y'all? So I'm, uh, you know, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying in that regard. I'm saying don't try and spiritualize the practical in the sense of, you know, if we're all going to get in a room and have 300 bishops sit there and, you know, get their little keypads out and get walked painstakingly through how they <laughs> do their anonymous balloting, let's not pretend that that's an important expression of communio. Right, right. It's I not. Think, I think maybe we could say, um, meet more, do less. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And again, uh, when they do meet, I think it would be great if they spent less time debating um you know, line items in policy documents and pouring over endless, you know, uh, paragraphs and items for proposal and, you know, amendments and all of those nonsense. I think it'd be much better if they actually just had a conversation. Like one of the most fruitful meetings of the Bishop's Conference I've ever seen was the one directly after the yeah. McCarrick scandal broke yeah, when they awesome. basically cleared a day and said, open mic. It was awesome, actually. And, and, and guys were, I think, much more the reason they cleared the day was because the Holy See wouldn't let them pass a policy, you know, vote yeah. on a policy that they wanted to vote on. So they basically had a giant hole in their schedule. It's like, oh and God, now we have to talk to each other. We yeah, don't have an agenda like, to read from. Yeah, it was we, just like, okay, you know, we're, we don't have any big presentations or anything. Just like the McCarrick stuff has been pretty crazy. Anybody want to say anything? And guys talked for hours. And that was in the open session. I'm told that in the executive session of the same meeting, there was even more of that. And it was even more, the executive session, you know, no one can be at, but the bishops. And I'm told there's even more of that. And it was even more powerful. And, and again, more of that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. Exactly. That's right. So we agree. <laughs> we do, as I thought we would. Yeah. So Episcopal conferences have a function of a fostering Episcopal collegiality among the bishops of a territory. They can make a couple of rules. They can teach. They actually, they can teach. They can exercise. The The bishops conference can exercise authentic ordinary magisterium, which means that they can teach in an official way in the name of the church. And that's important too, but that, you know, the, that is genuinely important, although there is a way in which sometimes the danger is um, when bishops want to teach through the Episcopal Conference for everything, when you have a committee and everybody wants to say every, you know, or when you have all the bishops voting on something and everybody wants to say something, the best way to sort of mediate that is to end up saying nothing. And so, you know, I, for myself, I sometimes think it's better when bishops do their own teaching than when the conference is too much teaching, but that's up to them. Um, the point is the conference can do it. And that is what an Episcopal conference is. There you go. There you go. Well, Ed, it has been lovely talking to you. Uh, yes, this has been a, a lovely, a lovely conversation, JD. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, a JD and Ed joint. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And we will talk to you and argue with each other next week. Forward the revolution.